Well, good morning, everyone. There's an interesting story that I read, and I'll read it for you. On January 30th, 1973, Patrice Tamau of Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, allowed himself to be nailed to a cross as a sacrifice for world peace and understanding among men. Now, I'm sure we've all heard of these crazy publicity stunts. You know, people like publicity stunts, right? We see them in the news and things like that. Well, I guess uh, uh, Christians are pretty good at them too, and this is a pretty wild one. As thousands watched on television, six-inch stainless steel nails were driven through his hands and his feet. Tomeo had planned to remain on the cross for 48 hours, but after only 20 hours, he had to be cut short. He had to cut short his voluntary crucifixion because of an infection in his right foot. The newspaper article had as its heading, Crucifixion for Peace Falls Short. And isn't that the case uh, with all the various things that we see in the world, the various attempts at peace? We began a message last time on peace with God, uh, having peace with God. And we discussed uh, various aspects of that. We, we talked about our natural state as God's enemies, though uh, mankind may not feel as if they're an enemy of God. They indeed are. God treats them as such. If we are not in Christ, we are at war with God and we are facing his wrath. And we also looked at all the ways in which we try to make peace that do not make peace through our own efforts, through a religion, through good works, whatever else it is. And we find how we do have peace with God. And it, it gets to the, the central passage that we've kind of been orbiting around the whole time, which is Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, which says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to continue that theme, that topic of peace with God. And we're going to be uh, answering the question, how is it that the sacrifice of Jesus truly does bring us peace with God. We're going to talk about the blessings that come from peace with God, and we'll conclude by talking about how do we live in light of this peace that we have with God. So that's kind of our outline that we can have in our heads as we go into this. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we've had, that we have with one another to read your word, to talk about the peace, the perfect peace, which you have purchased for us through the sending of your son to die on the cross. We're thankful that we can come to you as your children, as those whom you have made peace with that we can draw near to Jesus and receive that peace that you offer us. We pray that you bless this time that we have this, uh, this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time we discussed our own state, why we are not at peace with God, right? And we're not going to get too deep into it, but it's important to bring this up. Uh, we do not have peace with God. You know, we're, we're enemies with God because ultimately because of our sin. 
We, none are righteous, no, not one, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. So how is it that God can take a sinner like you and me, who is still a sinner, right? How many of us can say that we are no longer sinners? How many of us can say that we are righteous? How is it that it is through faith in Christ that God can take someone like you and me and say, I have peace with them. Uh, No more war, no more uh, wrath, nothing. How does that work? Well, we have peace with God on the grounds, ultimately, of the sacrifice of Christ. And we're going to talk about what exactly that means. Peace with God is not something that we go out and achieve, but something that God achieves for us through Christ. Uh, Our peace with God isn't determined by how we feel, right? And we talked about this, how peace with God isn't us us feeling uh, feeling peaceful in mind and things like that. It does carry those things. But our peace with God is an objective truth based on what God has done, right? It it is an objective truth that uh, we are no longer at war with Japan, Right? It is an objective truth that we're no longer at war in Germany, and it's a, an objective truth that we are no longer at war with God because of what God has done. It doesn't mean that we always feel at peace, uh, but it is a, a true and lasting peace. It's determined by what God has done in Christ uh, by reconciling us to God through faith. If we're, in still, if we're still in Romans chapter 5, we read verse 10 says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we have peace with God because of the peace that God makes with us through the death of his Son. By grace, God's free, gracious gift given apart from our works. And this peace is achieved through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. One great passage that uh, points to this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which I can just read, uh, one that we know well. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So how is it that we can stand before God and be counted as righteous, counted as holy, counted as spotless? How is it that our sin, God can say, the wrath will not be carried out on you? Because God is a just God, is he not? God's not a liar, right? Uh, God uh, cannot just simply let sin go. How, how exactly can we stand there? And this verse answers that. Uh, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This has been called the, the great exchange, and it points to the reality that we can stand in peace with God because Jesus died the death that we deserve in our place. And we can stand as righteous before God, not because of our righteousness, but because of the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is credited to us. Now, the the good news is Jesus died for our sins, 
right? And you can probably go out and, and ask any number of people, well, what did Jesus do? Why, or why did Jesus die on the cross? And they would give the answer, he died for our sins. But what exactly does that mean, that Jesus died for our sins? And not only that, we, how is it that a believer can be counted as righteous in the sight of God? Well, because of this great exchange, because Christ lived the life that we could not live, the perfect, holy, righteous life. He died the death that we deserve to die, taking the wrath of God. Uh, one of the important things that uh, we need to recognize one of the important things that uh, was re-emphasized, especially around the time of the Reformation, is what is called the imputed righteousness of Christ. Have you ever heard that word, imputed? Well, it's it, just a fancy word that means righteousness that is credited to your account. When we, how is it that we are considered as righteous before God, right? having been justified by faith. We know what justified means, declared as righteous. But where does that righteousness come from? Now, did we all of a sudden become sinlessly perfect upon believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? No, we did not. So how is it that God can look at me who is not sinlessly perfect and still call me righteous? Well, because the righteousness which I have is not a righteousness that came from me. It is a righteousness that is given to me, that is credited to me on the basis of faith. In fact, the only righteousness that will avail before God is the righteousness of God. And this is a major theme throughout the book of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 17 says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man will live by faith. So how is it that we are righteous? Righteous by our own works, by our own standing? No, righteous given as a gift through faith. Our, right, uh, our righteousness cannot avail before God. And this gets back to what we were talking about before. Many people have the idea that uh, our standing before God is dependent on our performance, right? our performance, our ability to follow the rules, our ability to do what God says. And uh, as long as we do that, then we'll be good enough before God. But as we saw before, that's not the case. The righteousness that we have is not our righteousness with divine assistance. The righteousness that we have is not a mixture of our righteousness with God's righteousness. It is only the righteousness of Christ alone, which is given through faith, that avails before God. Why did Christ have to come and live 30 years on this earth before his ministry began, before he went to the cross? What was he doing all those 30 years? Well, we don't have much to go on on what he was doing. But one thing we can know is that those 30 years were the most perfect 30 years of life any human being has ever lived. What is it that God the Father said of Jesus at the baptism, at his baptism? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Why is it that Jesus uh, went to be baptized by John? John? Remember what John had said. John said, uh, no, it is you who should be baptizing me. And what did Jesus respond to him? 
it is fitting that this is done so that I fulfill all righteousness. And what was Jesus doing? Well, he was fulfilling that righteousness which we could not fulfill. He was living the perfectly righteous life in the place of those who believe, uh, fulfilling every aspect of righteousness in which we are lacking. Right? Think of all the areas in our life in which we fall short. Well, Jesus did not fall short. Whose performance do you want to be presented before God? Well, you want it to be Jesus. Um, uh, we read in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, Paul is speaking of the Gentiles. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, he says, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained that righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Now that's almost paradoxical, isn't it? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness found righteousness. And how did they find that righteousness? Well, the righteousness given through faith. And contrasting that, what do we have? But Israel, verse 31 pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. So we have two people, the Gentiles, the Jews. The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness and they found it. The Jews, on the other hand, are pursuing righteousness and yet they did not arrive. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. See, the only righteousness that will avail before God is the righteousness of Christ. And the only way to receive that righteousness of Christ is to believe on him through faith. The Apostle Paul contrasts the righteousness of Christ with the righteousness which he possessed in the book of Philippians. And Philippians, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, we see this contrast. Now let's picture, uh, if you will, picture uh, one of the most holy religious people you can imagine. Well, in those days, Paul was perhaps one of the most holy and religious peoples that you could imagine. He was part of the people of Israel. He was a Pharisee, a studier of the law. As far as the law was concerned, he stood blameless before it. This is what he has to say in uh, Philippians chapter 3, uh, describing his own righteousness. He says, uh, I myself might have confidence in the flesh. And if anyone, uh, in verse 4, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. So these are Paul's credentials. Paul's saying, I'm the man. Uh, you want to see righteousness looks like here on this earth, you will not find a better specimen than the Apostle Paul. But compared to the righteousness of Christ, what does that righteousness look like? He says, But whatever these things were to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is found, which is from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. That is the righteousness in which we stand. How is it that we can stand before God? Because of the righteousness of Christ granted to us through faith. How is it that our sins can be forgiven? Uh, This is the other aspect of it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God in him, right? We covered that first part. How is it that we are the righteousness of God in him? His righteousness is credited to us. How is it that our sins are taken away? Well, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This is how we have peace with God. This is why we can say confidently that we will not face the wrath of God because that wrath was poured out on Jesus. Uh, To get an idea of what this looks like, we we have to have some understanding of, of God's wrath. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15 we read, for thus, says the, uh, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of wine, the wrath from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So we have wrath, God's wrath, pictured as a cup, a cup of wine. And God is saying, I'm about to pour all my wrath out on the nations. You, I'm going to cause them to drink this cup of wrath. And we can read in the Old Testament to see what this looks like. This looks like cities destroyed, people being wiped out, God's just wrath being poured out on them. And we can even see that in our day, right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But what do we read? Uh, but what do we read of what do we read Jesus saying in the garden? What does Jesus say? Why is it that Jesus is praying so fervently in the garden? He says, "Father, let this cup pass from me." Well, what was that cup? The cup of wrath due to sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. What does it mean that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Well, what it means is Jesus was punished. He received the punishment due to our sins. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 says that he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. How is it that we're redeemed from the curse that comes from uh, breaking the law of God? Well, Jesus became that curse in our place. uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 says this, For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So if we think we have any righteousness before God, well, guess what? All it takes is one small transgression of that law and we fall under that curse. But now now that no one is justified by law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What is it that Christ came to do? 
to die on the cross, to die the death of a sinner, because what Christ was doing in Jesus was punishing sin. So how is it that we can know we have peace with God? Well, because of what Jesus did on the cross. But we know that his death was not the end. In fact, Jesus rose again from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father forever to act as our intercessor, our high priest, to stand in the place before God for all who draw near to him. Uh, Jesus is alive today. And because he is alive today, we have peace with God. So what is the grounds for our peace with God? Well, what Jesus has done. We can say that we have peace with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. It has nothing to do with me. When I say I have peace with God, I'm not saying anything about myself other than what God has done to make peace. I am describing what God has done to make peace for me. So peace with God comes with a great many blessings, and that's what we're going to discuss next. If we turn back to Romans chapter 5, to that section we've been looking at, we can begin to see some of these blessings, right? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So we've talked about the grace in which we stand. Remember what grace is. God giving us what we do not deserve. Well, we are firmly planted in that grace of God because of what Jesus did. And then we read in, uh, at the, in the second half of this verse, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So, uh, your translation may say exalt, but this word boast, right? We've heard this word before, haven't we? Uh, usually, when we read boast, uh, we read before it you sh- so that you cannot boast. One of the places we find this concept of boasting is uh, Ephesians chapter 2, where uh, Paul tells us, therefore, by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves it is not a result of works, so that no one may boast, right? We can't boast in salvation because it's not something that it resulted from our works. But Paul here is saying now, uh, almost paradoxically, but there is something that we can boast in, and what is that? Well, we can't boast in ourselves, but we can boast in the salvation that God has given us. How many um, before coming to Christ uh, when you, before you came to Christ, if we can think back to that, how many of you before coming to Christ uh, were annoyed or confused when someone said, I know I'm going to heaven? A- anyone? Well, me growing up, if I heard someone say, I know I'm going to heaven, what my immediate thought is, you think you're so good, don't you? Right? We think, what a boaster. Uh, How can this person be so confident in himself, so confident that he is good enough that he's going to go to heaven? And and I knew that what an arrogant thing to say. And if heaven was dependent on my works, if heaven was dependent on my performance, it would be a very arrogant thing to say. And yet, Paul says, this is our boast that we will receive 
the glory of God, that we will be glorified with God. In other words, that we will be in heaven. So we can boast in that. Why? Well, because when I say I'm going to heaven, I'm not describing, once again, I'm not describing what I have done. I'm describing what God has done to save me. God is my boast. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, this is what he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So if you, uh, if you are here chosen by God, Paul is saying that you have no reason to boast because guess what? You're one of the lesser things of the world. You're not one of the smarter. You're not one of the wiser. You're not one of the greater things of the world. You're not one of those people who can boast about much of anything. But he is saying this because uh, uh, he's uh, chosen to nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have a boast, but that boast is not of ourselves. Our boast is of how great our God is, right? And that's how the conversation needs to go. I know I'm going to heaven because my God is great. I know I'm going to heaven because of what my God has done in Christ Jesus. That's what, our, that's what our focus should be on. So what does Paul say? We can boast and we exalt or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And I want to focus on this word hope, right? Because we use hope in a very wrong way, I think. When, when we say the word hope, uh, usually it has something to do like this. We're looking outside, rain clouds are coming in, and you say, I hope it doesn't rain. Well, what are you saying when we say that? Well, I know it's going to rain, but I would like for it not to. And I'd be very happy if it didn't happen. Usually when we hope for something, it's usually something we don't expect to receive. That's how we use the word hope. And I'm not saying we can't use it in that way. It's just part of the way we use it. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's not describing something that's merely a, a possibility or, or something that would be nice. Rather, when the Bible uses the word hope, it describes a sure reality, that we, just one that we don't see yet. It's describing something that's real. It's describing something that's certain, but we haven't quite received it yet. right? And this is how Paul uses it. In Romans uh, chapter 8, he says, and not only this, but, our, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. So that's our expectation. We're looking ahead to our redemption, to that glorification, the redemption of our bodies. And he says, for in hope we have been saved. 
But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So think of hope this way, right? Uh, This is how the Bible uses it. Hope isn't saying, well, I hope this thing that I don't think is going to happen happens. Hope is saying, I know this is going to happen, therefore I'm eagerly waiting for it, even though I don't yet see it. And that's the hope that we have. We have the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And what is this this glory of God? Well, what this is describing uh, is what we will be, right? We're not yet where we are going to be. Our natural state, we fall short of the glory of God. That's what uh, Paul tells us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not there yet. And yet, what is the expectation that we have? The expectation that we have is that we will receive that glory. That we will be in the likeness of God in the ways that we can be. We will be like God. God. And this is the glory of God that I think Paul is anticipating. And another way that he puts this glory of God is, uh, is this way. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he says, Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Conformed to the image of his Son. What does the glory of God look like? Well, as much as we can look like Christ, we will be made to be like Christ. Christ. Now, what is, what is Christ like? Well, perfect, holy, just, loving, all of these things that we're not, all of these things that we fall so short in. God says, I'm conforming you to that image. And Paul is saying that we can boast in our great hope, our great expectation that we will be like Jesus. That is our great hope. That is our boast. In Philippians chapter 3, He says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also uh, eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity of the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And similarly, John tells us this, beloved now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we, will be, what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is our great expectation. This is the great promise. So what does this mean? Well, as many implications, but one of the, the great implications that many people struggle with is that the salvation that we have through faith in Christ is a certainty and the, and the salvation that we have is something that will never be lost. We can have certainty of salvation. We can have security uh, in eternity because we are ultimately being kept by the work of God. And there's a number, great uh, number of reasons why this is. The whole triune God is at work in bringing about our salvation. We see the work of God the Father in determining our salvation from the foundation of the world. Salvation isn't our plan, it's God's plan. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, God is not like us. God is outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning. So if God says your salvation, your eternity is predestined, is there anything that can change that? No. Uh, We're kept because of the predestining work of the Father. We're also kept because Christ will not fail to save those who are given to him by the Father. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And we're kept because of the work of the Spirit indwelling us. In the book of Ephesians, uh, we read, In Christ you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Salvation is a sure thing. This is one of the uh, things that many Christians may have trouble with. Uh, The idea that salvation is something that can never be lost. It can never be taken away. But when we recognize that salvation is Uh, a work of God, when we recognize that salvation is based on that peace with God that we have, it's not something that can go away. Remember last time we talked about peace, the idea of peace in the Hebrew mind, that word shalom. It's not merely a ceasefire, but a complete ceasing of hostility and a restoration of relationship. And that's a peace that does not go away. We continue reading in Romans uh, chapter 5, one of the other uh, great benefits, one of the other great blessings of having peace with God is that we can know that as we're living this life, God is at work in us. God is at work around us, and he is working all things together for good in this life, and that includes the trials and tribulations. So we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, we read this. And not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not put to shame. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So we have peace with God, and because we have peace with God, we can have peace in the world that we live in. We, in fact, can boast in the tribulations and the difficulties of life because we know that God is at work even in these to bring about that ultimate end of glorifying us. Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
all things, you know, even the difficult things, we can know that God is at work. We can know that God is accomplishing his purposes. Romans 8, 35 through 39, Paul asks, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. For we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we live our life, we can know that the peace with God has ramifications for everything in our lives. So we can then ask, we need to uh, ask, okay, what can I take away from this? Uh, how should I live in light of this? And in the last few minutes, we need to talk about how do we live in peace with God? So the peace with God that we have is an objective thing. It's nothing that can be taken away. It's something that is certain. However, it does have implications on how we are to live as God's people. And Paul tells us a number of these things. One, consider yourself dead to sin right? Remember, what did Christ do? He became sin for us. Our sin was punished in Christ. We had a certain way that we lived before peace with God was made. And the apostle tells us in Colossians, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, to impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put, us, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its old practices. So in other words, we can say we have peace with God. Let us no longer live as if we are still at war with God. There's an interesting story uh, that I read about a, a Japanese soldier who was on some island, some little island in the Philippines. And this Japanese soldier, uh, after World War II ended, well, he didn't realize that World War II had ended. He's stuck on this island. I, I think he might have had uh, two other people for a short amount of time. You know the story, Ernest? Guam, yes, it was in Guam, yep, he was in Guam, so he's got a couple guys with him. He doesn't know the war has ended, and he's continuing to carry out these various attacks and things like that. They're dropping in pamphlets saying, the war is over, the war is over, and he reads it and he says, no, 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 this can't be true, we couldn't have possibly lost. And it wasn't until the 70s that this man finally realized, oh, the war is over, right? And sometimes we can still live as if the war is going on, right? We at least have some of those old same practices. Well, the war is over, therefore, no longer live fighting as if the war is still going on. Our old man has died in Christ. There's no longer need to live as if we, as we once did when, the, when we were at war with God. Paul tells us, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? He says, consider yourselves dead to sin. That old combatant is dead, right? Once you shoot someone in a war, once you kill someone, he can't come back and keep fighting, can he? Right? Our old man is dead as well. 
So therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. So these are the things you are no longer to do, but we're called to live in the newness of life that is given to us by Christ. Paul tells us, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall, be also, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him. We have been brought to freedom, right? This life that we have in Christ, many people view it as, uh, well, many people view coming to Christ as uh, becoming enslaved. And yeah, there's some truth to that. We're always going to be enslaved to something. However, freedom is, uh, what true freedom is, is being enslaved to the perfect master, right? Those who are not in Christ, they're not free. They're slaves to sin. But we who are in Christ, we have the true and proper restraints that give us true freedom. Uh, Though we are free, we often have the tendency to go back to our old habits of slavery, as we know. Uh, The people of Israel, what's one thing that they often wanted to do when they were in the wilderness? They said, let's go back to Egypt. Because as they looked back on Egypt, they tricked themselves into thinking they were far better off there. And we can do that too in our own minds. But we need to recognize that we have been freed from sin. So therefore, no longer walk in it. We're called to love one another, right? Love those who have been redeemed right along with us. Uh, The peace that we have with God is not just with God, but uh, it is a peace that is brought with one another as well. Colossians tells us, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgive you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. And as people who have received the peace of God, we are to be ambassadors of that peace with God. The word gospel from which we get the word evangelize, means good news or glad tidings. And glad tidings usually carry the idea of peace with them. It's a proclamation of peace. As Isaiah says, How lovely in the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. And this is the very same passage that the Apostle Paul quoted. And one of the roles that God has for us is to be those ambassadors of peace in this world. We have received peace with God, and now God is using us to proclaim that peace to the world around us. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that's the message that God has given to us to bring to the world around us. So, we conclude. Uh, we looked at three things this, this morning. We looked at the fact that we have peace with God on the basis of his substitutionary work on the cross. 
He lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve to die, rose again from the dead, forever seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for those who draw near. We have great benefits from having peace with God. We have the assurance of glory. We know what our future holds. We know that that glorious future is ahead of us. We can have certainty in our salvation. We can know that it is secured forever and can never be lost. And we can know that we're being conformed to the image of Christ even in this life as we face the difficult trials and tribulations of this world. And now we are to live in light of that peace with God, live as dead to sin and alive to God, living in a loving way towards one another and living as ambassadors of God's peace in this world. Let's live in that peace. Let's walk in that peace. Let's be channels of that peace to the world around us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for the peace that we have with you, that we can come to you as your children because of the peace which you made through the blood of the cross of Jesus. I pray that we would live in light of that peace, that we would appreciate that peace in a way that we should, that we would give thanks for that peace, and that we would be ambassadors of that peace to a world that is still in conflict with you. We pray for peace in this earth. We pray that it would begin with us, and we pray that the message of peace on our lips would be that Jesus died our soul to save. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.